good morning, church family. How are we doing this morning? Well, I hope I hope you've had a great week. We've had a good week in our student ministry as this week with Sia at the pole and our teenagers and, and hundreds and thousands of teenagers uh, all across the globe gathered together and prayed this last Wednesday morning for their school, for uh, our government, for our parents and our families and our churches. Such an amazing thing. And we even had a gathering uh, Wednesday night here with several churches to have a rally. And it was just an awesome thing to worship together and be challenged together. So continue to pray for our teenagers as they follow through with this. Uh, and if you're a guest with us, it's so good to see you here at First Baptist Church where we do life together. If you would, please fill out one of these blue cards. We'd like to, to visit you and get to know more about you. Also, if anyone has a prayer request, you can put that on the back of one of these blue forms and we will pray for you throughout the week. This morning looks a little different, so we're going to have Stuart come up and introduce our speaker as well as our schedule change. And then we'll pray together. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you here today. And it's a little bit chilly in here. That just means the air conditioner's working today. And uh, remember, the sanctuary remodel is coming next year, so uh, keep those cards and letters coming in with checks and gifts to making way. Uh, the best seats in the house this morning are the choir. This is a day when it's great to have a choir robe on and be under the house lights and the stage lights. But I uh, hope that you'll snuggle up to your spouse and uh, just uh, we'll enjoy a good time of worship this morning. We are blessed today to have Ricky Shillette with us. Ricky uh, served as youth minister here back in the late 80s and 90s. He told me this morning, thank you for making me feel old when I said, yeah, I was a student at my own church watching the youth group at First Baptist Pineville, and I think I even sold Ricky a yearbook ad for First Baptist for Rapids High School uh, when I was a student there. But we are blessed to have Ricky. He did a fantastic job during our Sunday school hour talking about gender identity, and uh, we'll be speaking and uh, preaching this morning, and then we'll have a question and answer luncheon uh, following this. If you have not RSVP'd for the luncheon, you're welcome to attend. You just can't eat. Because we we have only enough for those that RSVP'd, but you're welcome to attend and uh, see what uh, Ricky has to share at that. Um, Ricky currently serves as the executive director of Living Hope Ministries, which is an organization that is destined to help those who are seeking help with gender identity. And so this is something that Ricky works with every day in Arlington, Texas. And so we are blessed to have someone who is on the front lines of ministry trying to help people overcome uh, this challenge that our culture says is right, but we know the Lord says is sin. And so we want to help them to understand um, God has a better way, and we want to help them to overcome that. And so you're going to be blessed today as Ricky comes to share. Uh, Ryan's going to come and lead us in a word of prayer as we continue to worship. We want to meet with God this morning and to see him do a great work with us. Let's pray. Father, once again this morning we come before you with open hearts to hear your word through Scripture, to hear your word uh, about a cultural thing, and, and how it compares to the Bible, how you've created us, Father, and for your plan. Lord, we just give you our attention. And, Father, we know you're the God of all things. You created us. Lord, and you know our, our desires. Father, this morning we desire you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I hope you caught the message of the choir special this morning. Uh, we said, you are here, and we praise him for the cross, the nails, the crown, 
for the sacrifice that he made for us. Let's stand together as we sing to our King, Jesus.
That's what I want to do. That is what I want to do. I give you praise for you are my righteousness. I worship you. Father, this is our purpose in coming here today to worship you. As we consider you and your greatness and your, your awe-inspiring things that are all around us, we recognize that you are the creator of everything. Father, you created each one of us. I pray that the main purpose of our coming today was to worship you. Father, so open our hearts and our minds for all that you want to do in our lives today. Bless our speaker. Father, I pray that you've given him the words that you want us to hear. So I pray that our minds and our bodies might be open and receptive for the words that you have through him. Now, Father, as we come to this portion of the service, I pray that you'd bless the gift and the giver. Use it here and around the world to accomplish your purpose, for I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Fantastic. Wow. That's great. Well, hello, everyone. It's good to be back in Pineville. My goodness, it's been a long time since I've been here. Uh, some of you have gotten older. Yeah, you've really gotten older. Some of you have gotten heavier. Yeah. Good food here in Louisiana. Uh, we just have Mexican food in Texas. I don't understand it. Uh, bid you farewell from Barry Rock, if you remember Barry Rock. We're still working together after all these years. We're still working together at First Baptist Church in Arlington. I'm on staff there as well and uh, loving it. We've been there, uh, been away from here 21 years now. That's a long time to be away from someplace, but it is so good to be back here with you guys. I feel like it's home, uh, walking around the church and seeing stuff and uh, just remembering things that happened. All the hours I put in on this stage right here, my goodness, goodness, there's a lot of hours building stuff and singing stuff and doing crazy things on this stage uh, for, for worship. I remember those times. Remember lots of you. Some of you were just youth when I was here. Um, I remember that. And uh, some of you weren't and you're still not. And, uh, and that's okay. So that's good. 
But boy, our world has changed, hasn't it? In the 21 years, I've gotten older and balder and uh, got more gray hairs. Some of you in the audience own some of these gray hairs. I think when I was youth minister here, you put me through it. And so uh, so that's good. But it is so good just to be back with you. But like I said, uh, the world has changed and it's changed a lot. I've changed. You've changed. The church has changed. The culture we're in has changed in radical, radical kinds of ways. In fact, uh, if you just look at the last couple of years, you see some massive shifts that have taken place within our culture. The Supreme Court just recently, uh, this past year, redefined one of the fundamental institutions of all society, and that is marriage. We no longer believe uh, that people have to be a male and a female to be married anymore in our world. We also have come to a place where we no longer believe that uh, people have to be what they're born. They can just be what they feel, and we're quickly coming to a place in our culture where now boys can pretend to be girls and girls can pretend to be boys and we have to accept that and embrace that. We're in a world that says that gender and sex are to be separate things, not things that are together as the Bible might indicate, but are things that are really kind of determined uh, some by God but most by you and that's just the way we need to live out our lives. It's going to change what we do in men's ministries and women's ministries and even youth ministries in the days ahead. Um, we're going to find that sports is going to become a whole new deal uh, because suddenly that which used to be dominated by men's sports by men and women's sports by women are now going to just be dominated by men who think they're women. And uh, it's going to be a crazy, crazy world that we're going to live in. Uh, because uh, men can be women and women can be men, it's going to be interesting to see how we define who we are and what we think about ourselves. Right now, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 plus different gender identities that people can pick from. And that number is growing on a weekly basis. It's a crazy changing world that we're living in. The technology advances that we've made in recent years have caused fantasy and reality to collide in ways that we never dreamed possible. And what we find in our world today is that we're becoming increasingly connected, yet at the same time more isolated and deprivated than we've ever um, experienced before. It's a crazy, crazy world. The young people of our world today are are relationally isolated in ways that they've never experienced and are constantly looking for something deeper, something truer, if you will. Uh, They're looking for truth, but they keep finding it in all the wrong places. What is the church doing in the midst of all of this? Uh, It seems as though we've kind of avoided a lot of these conversations because they're not proper things that you should talk about in places like First Baptist Church. Um, they're not the kind of things that you ought to be saying from the pulpit. But I've wondered why, because even way back in the days, 21 years ago when I was here, I can remember uh, I was always that guy that was sort of on that edge. You know, some of you remember that pretty well. You wrote me letters and emails about it a lot. Um, but, uh, but I was always that guy that was kind of, you know, getting to the edge and then kind of just hanging your toes kind of off the edge just a little bit. That's kind of where I lived most of my life. Uh, because I always believed that, that the things that affected people most deeply were the things we needed to speak about most, most loudly in the church. And one of the things that is a reality for every breathing hum- human is the fact that we all feel things sexually. And as a result of that, we need to talk about those things. And what is God's expectation for that sexual reality? Um, 
We seem to be, as I said, searching for truth, but looking in all the, the wrong places to find it. Some folks are, are now kind of landing on the fact that science is going to be the real truth arbiter in our world. That science is going to be the thing that, that's going to really help us solve the problems of the world. And, and science is good. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm married to a nurse. I, I believe in science. I think it's very important. Uh, and by the way, those of you who know uh, Merlinda and know about her situation, um, uh, four years ago, uh, she got diagnosed with stage four kidney cancer. Um, it is an incurable, uh, at the time we got it almost untreatable, untreatable cancer, but, um, there's been some late new treatments that have come out and we're, we're doing those and she's doing great and looks fantastic. And, uh, thank you for your prayers. I know those are the things that are sustaining her and me. Um, but, but, you know, I believe in science. I, I, I believe that it's a real thing, but you know, science only reports the truth as they know it today. And if tomorrow we find out some new truth, then science will change. Think about it. Can you remember a time when eating an egg was a bad thing for your cholesterol? Remember that? Yeah, there was a time when fat was really bad for you. Now, I know Louisianians never believed that ever, but, but, but I mean, you know, from a health standpoint, fat was something that was supposed to be bad for you, right? You don't want to eat a lot of fat. Now they say, no, they're actually your fats that are really good for you. You need to eat olive oil and you need to eat avocados and there's certain kinds of fat that can really be good for you. There was a time when chocolate was thought to be bad. Now I don't know who thought of that, but obviously it was a man. Um, but, but, but it's, you know, cause women would have never said that about chocolate, but, but chocolate is now actually very good for you. So, so we see these things that change even in quote science. We seem to be fascinated with wanting to return to, uh, heritage kinds of crops and food. And we want heirloom tomatoes. Yet those very folks who would advocate sometimes strongly for those very things are the same people who oftentimes uh, believe that feelings can't change and that people can't change. And we shouldn't embrace the things of old because those things are antiquated and ineffective. It's crazy how our world is. Um, I think most of us are just searching for some truth, some real truth, some truth that is not going to be changing, some truth that we can rest our lives upon, some truth that we can settle in our heart to where we can keep that truth and live that truth forever and ever. Something that says, I'm going to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we have that truth. We've always had that truth. It's always been available to us and, and uh, there for us, but we seem to be missing it in our world today. Well, for the last 19 of the 21 years that I've been gone, uh, I've been walking with folks who struggle with all kinds of sexual and relational problems in their life, mostly those who deal with homosexuality or lesbianism or the parents and friends of those who do. I've heard thousands and thousands of stories of people who've walked through that reality, who struggle through the difficulties of their past and their present and tried to make some sense of all the craziness that's happening in their lives. And what I have seen in more cases than not, of those folks, as they begin to adopt and believe the truth, their lives become transformed by the power of the gospel. I've seen them go from, from being folks they never thought they could be to being people they now have been created to be. I've seen young men and young women come through our ministry who thought, for sure I can never get married because I have no attraction to the opposite sex. Five, ten, twelve years later, they're now married to someone of the opposite sex, having children, serving in the church, becoming productive people within God's kingdom. And folks look at that and say, it's impossible. I just look at it and say, that's the Jesus that I know. Because that's the Jesus that calls all of us to be transformed. 
It reminds me very much of, of this young lady I want to show you. She's just one of thousands that have come through our ministry. And I wanted you to see her story because her story is indicative of many stories that are out there. She's representative of that and how the church helped her in this process. So take a look at Catherine. My name is Catherine and uh, youngest of three daughters. Uh, just born into a broken home. My parents were divorced uh, before I was born. When I was three, my mom finally got remarried, and uh, everything for her started to come together because we didn't have to live in shelters. Unfortunately, he was more interested in me than he was my mom. And so uh, the kind of the first counts of sexual abuse started to happen uh, in my life at three and um, didn't stop for a very long time. In the next couple of years, being moved back and forth between my mom and my dad, I got to, you know, pretend to be this person or that person or, or, or whatever, and I just never had to be me. I ended up living with my friend's parents. We went to, and we walked into a tattoo shop one day to get uh, some piercings, and, uh, and I met a girl. So we started dating, and I found out that she has children, and I was really hesitant at that point. But we started this relationship, and we spent the next seven years together. It was about three, a little over three years ago. I just came to this cross point of, I have everything that I need, everything that I want. I have this, this woman who loves me and thinks I hung the moon. I have these children who love and respect me. And the Lord was so good to not let me be satisfied in that. I remember running into this guy at the tattoo shop. I had spoken to him several times, and anytime I talked to him, he would invite me to come to his church. But during this particular time, I remember saying, fine, you know, maybe he'll leave me alone. And, um, and I went. And I remember getting ready to go to church. I was so afraid to walk into this place. And, uh, and when I showed up, they just welcomed me. After going to church for a while, I decided to do the best I could following Jesus and being a lesbian. And knowing that that, that wasn't something that fit in with the Word, and I never even read the Bible there's something about it that I just knew that that wasn't going to work. And I knew that my next move was to leave my family. So I moved and I left. And all I knew to do was to go to church, to school, and to work. And that's all I did. And I met with this lady who was going to mentor me. After meeting with her one time, <laughs> she suggested that I go to Living Hope. Coming to Living Hope, it was really obvious that they were far more concerned with my walk with Jesus than how I looked or how I talked or how I dressed. It really was um, them encouraging me to, to seek the Lord in all the ways I was broken. But they were also not afraid to address what was broken about me. Uh, they, they addressed it with the gospel. They addressed it with love. They addressed it with having been there and and I could trust that. I know that I couldn't have done any of the things over the last year and a half without the ministry of Living Hope. Um, it is a ministry worth investing in and pouring into in any way that you're able to. I know that for me, just being able to participate and see lives literally changed, not even only my own, which is so shocking to me, but also to see the other lives of other people who once thought they were this and now they're living in the truth that Jesus uh, has created them to be. Uh, it's one of the most powerful things I've, I've ever been a part of. 
and uh, and I'm humbled and honored to be a part of it. And uh, yeah, it's just it's really changed my life. So that's Catherine. Notice one of the things she says that I think sometimes we forget, especially in the church. Our answer to most people when they deal with any kind of relational or sexual brokenness is simply to tell them to stop. It's like, just stop it. You know, you know what you're doing is not right. Just stop doing it. It's just that simple, right? I mean, you know it's a wrong thing, then stop doing the wrong thing. But notice what she said. She had been living with this woman for seven years. Now, what she didn't say that I know is that she also had three children in that family that were very, very young children when she uh, connected with that woman. Catherine became the surrogate mom, in a sense, for those children. And she brought them to their little league games, and she baked brownies for their homeroom, and she was their mom for seven years. And they were just little bitty ones when she, matter of fact, the, the youngest was still an infant when she got with this young woman. Now, I've never been a mom, so I don't know what that connection feels like, but I can hardly imagine what it must be like to raise three children for seven years with someone as your partner, and then all of a sudden believe that God is calling you to walk away from that relationship and to walk out on those three children. Now, it's one thing for us as a church to say, hey, you need to do what's right. You need to make the right decision. You need to follow Jesus. And certainly you do. But I think what we need to also realize is that decision may not be quite as easy as somebody just simply saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to stop doing that. And so we need to walk with people patiently, understanding that that breakup is going to be a tough thing and they're going to grieve and they're going to hurt. And there are going to be days that they spend many in tears because of the loss that they've experienced. But what you also see and hear in Catherine, and you could see it in those photos she was looking at from back in the day when she was uh, living her lesbian life, is that the, the gospel is transformational. The gospel radically changes people's heart and life. That is what the gospel does. And I don't know why that's such a surprise to people. I don't understand why we're so shocked by the fact that the gospel transforms people. Because if we just read the gospel, we see people transformed all of the time. Just take one of my favorite writers in the New Testament, Paul. He wrote the majority of the New Testament. If you look at his life, you talk about transformation. Do you remember that Paul is the same guy that was called Saul, that when Stephen was stoned to death, Paul was standing there supervising the stoning to make sure that it happened correctly. It was at Saul's feet that they placed the robe of Stephen. Paul knew how to persecute the Christian. He was persecuting the church. He was killing Christians. He wanted to stop the church from moving forward. It tells us that in Acts 7. But yet Paul was also the same guy who on the road to Damascus, on the road called Straight, incidentally, that Paul meets Jesus. And when Paul meets Jesus, suddenly a transformation takes place in his heart. That then he becomes this great evangelist who goes out and shares the gospel with the lost Gentile world. He becomes one of the great uh, fathers of our faith. That's the kind of transformation that happens when the gospel is unleashed in the lives of people. That is the kind of transformation that can happen in our culture, in our world today. But it only happens when you and I who know the gospel share the gospel and are brave enough to stand up for the gospel. If you and I won't be willing to do that, then there are folks who won't feel and experience that transformation. We have to tell the truth. 
Because the truth will set them free. You see, the problem with Catherine was ultimately not her homosexuality. The problem that Catherine had, the problem that actually Paul had, the problem that actually you and I have is not a problem of uh, sexual deviance in some way or sexual confusion or any of that. The problem that we all have is a problem of sin. You see, that is ultimately our orientation. Our orientation isn't homosexuality or heterosexuality or even bisexuality. Our orientation is towards sin. That sin manifests itself in a lot of different ways, but the problem is a sin problem. And praise be to God, we have a Savior who said, I've taken care of the sin problem. I've died on the cross for you so that you don't have to be in bondage to this sin forever and ever. Look at me if you, uh, look with me if you will in your scripture to, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to spend a little time there because here is just one passage of six or seven passages I could have picked that talk specifically about homosexuality. But I love this one because I don't want to just talk about homosexuality this morning. I want to talk about all of us. I want to talk to all of us about sin. And this is a passage that kind of addresses the sin problem for all of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11, here's what it says. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, why would Paul start out saying something like that? Well, he'd start out saying this because he was the one who started the church in Corinth. It was one of his children, if you will, one of his spiritual children. He had begun the church there and he had planted this little body of believers in the midst of this very hedonistic, paganistic world. Uh, the world of Corinth was a very secular reality. Uh, th- there were no Christians there but this small group of believers. Now, you and I have no concept of what that feels like. I've heard some of my Christian friends right now say, oh, I feel like a Corinthian, uh, you know, in, in a, a Christian in, in, in Corinth nowadays. And I'm like, no, you don't. I mean, you may feel a little bit of pressure from the culture to not be so openly Christian. Yeah, we may feel that. We have no concept in America of what it feels like to be a persecuted Christian. I know you think you're persecuted if somebody gets upset with you about the fact that you believe in Jesus or that you're a Republican or something like that. I mean, you know, you think that's persecution. That isn't persecution. Okay, nobody's threatening your life. Nobody's firing you from your job. It's getting there, but it's not there yet. But hang on, it's going to happen. We're going to get to experience it. It's coming to a neighborhood near you. But the reality is in Corinth, these little, this little group of, of, of Christians, they totally got it. Because they were the only ones there. Everybody else around them was against them. Everyone. And so Paul writes back to them and he says, listen, remember the things that I taught you. And what I taught you was that you're not going to be able to inherit the kingdom if you have unrighteousness in your in your life. And so they knew that God was holy and only ones who could enter would be the holy ones. And then he says, just in case you don't remember everything I taught you, let me remind you. And then he says to them, don't be deceived. Now, isn't that interesting? Why would you tell someone not to be deceived if they couldn't be deceived? That would be a dumb statement. It's kind of like saying, oh, watch out for the pothole, but there's no pothole there. Well, that would be a dumb statement. You wouldn't warn someone to avoid something that isn't actually there. And so Paul says to them, hey, be careful. Why? Because as the culture pushes against you, the propensity for you to acquiesce to the culture is going to be pretty high. So he says, don't do that. Don't give in to the culture. What you need to do is stand strong in the things that you've been taught. So he says, don't be deceived because you could be. And then he lists a bunch of things that they, that, that would qualify as unrighteousness. And here's what they are. First thing he lists, 
Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor effeminate men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there's a whole bunch of sin in that list, okay? And when you and I look at the list, we like it. But you know why we like it? Because we pick the things in it that we don't do. And there's enough of those things in the list that we don't do that we can point our fingers towards someone else. And that makes us feel better. Because as long as we can talk about somebody else's sin and it's not our sin, we don't have to feel conviction for where we live and how we live. And so sure enough, that's what we do. And so we look at that. The first thing he starts off with is he says the sexually immoral. And if you if you read Paul and you look at Paul in the New Testament, he gives these vice lists multiple places. They're not always the same, but they always start with sexual immorality. And the word that he actually uses here is in the Greek, pornea. It is the most broad term that he could possibly pick to talk about sexual sin. It basically covers any uh, sexual expression with the exception of sex between a man and a woman and his, uh, a man and his wife married forever. Anything that's not that would be covered under pornea. And so that is what he starts out this list with. He says, neither those who are sexually immoral nor idolaters. Well, we look at that and go, well, I'm, I'm not an idolater, nor am I sexually immoral. I'm absolutely pure. Well, I would probably question that a little bit. Promise keepers, when they were strong and going, would say that 85% of the men who attended their meetings had looked at pornography the week prior to attending the meeting. Now, just think about that for a minute. Promise keeper men, I mean, these are the cream of the crop guys. These are the guys who show up at those kinds of rallies. These aren't the guys who aren't coming to church. These are the guys who are there all the time. And yet they had looked at pornography the week prior to coming to the Promise Keeper meeting. According to a lot of the surveys today, they say something like 98% of men are viewing pornography at some point. It doesn't matter if you're Christian or not Christian. These, these guys are doing this. Why? Because it's so available. Never before have we had such access and such freedom right in the palm of your hand. So what used to be something you did in clandestine kinds of ways, sneaking around at some shop to go look at a magazine, is now literally available in the palm of your hand 24-7. And men are falling to it all the time. And you say, well, wait a minute. The ladies are like, well, I don't ever, I don't ever look at any of that stuff. That, that, that's not me. Well, guess what, ladies? You're the fastest growing group of new users to pornography. Only because men have maxed out. And so now you believe that, that, that you need to, you know, there's no more guys there, basically. So, uh, you know, the, the ladies are like, well, we need to have the same kind of sexual appetites as men do. So now ladies are looking at it more and more. Or for some of you who haven't looked at pornography and you say, no, that's not your issue. What about those steamy novels you read? Yeah, you know, the ones that give all the descriptive stuff. And let's be honest, I mean, uh, you're probably more inclined to listen or to read uh, those kinds of things than you are to necessarily look at the visual stuff. Men are more visually stimulated, but women like the thought. You like to imagine. You like to pretend. And so as a result of that, these ladies that are you know, buying these really steamy novels, uh, you're basically just reading soft porn. So sexual immorality might be a part of our lives and an idolatry. Oh, my goodness. Now, I know that none of us bow down and worship an idol. We don't, you know, burn incense to some god or something like that. But, but I mean, did you see that LSU game last night? I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of idolatry that happens in Louisiana. Or what about those saints? Or, or you know, if you're over where I am, my office building that, that, that I'm in, I can actually look out and see a $1.2 billion worship center that we have built for Jerry and his boys. Yeah, the Cowboy Stadium is just right, not too far from my window. 
I can see it from my office. And, and, and it's amazing. I, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, for the first time, I've been there 21 years, but for the first time ever, I was given, uh, the only way I would get there, I was given two tickets, uh, four tickets actually, but it only took two of us for Merlin and I, but, uh, we, we got some tickets given to us to go watch a cowboy game. And I'd never seen a cowboy game in Cowboy Stadium. Well, the tickets, the, the, the retail price on the tickets were $340 each. And then to park in the parking lot was another $75. Okay? Now, now I, I'm just thinking about that, and I'm thinking, how would this work, Stuart? How would this work? If, if, if we had folks, and we said, in order to come to church, we're only going to charge you $125, and we're only going to charge you $40 to park in the parking lot. Do you think we'd have a full house here this morning? So when we look at idolatry, we need to stop and ask ourselves, really, are we in some ways a bit of idol worship? Because we will spend incredible amounts of money to go and participate and see things like football. But sometimes when it comes back to the house of the Lord, we're not as committed or dedicated to that as we are some of these other things. And then it says uh, thieves. Now, that kind of fits right in with what I'm just talking about, because the reality is, sure, you may not steal anything, but how are you doing with your tithing? Now, I can say this because I'm not here now. See, I can talk to you about this and I'm not going to leave. And you're not, you know, it doesn't matter what you say about me. So, so I'm going to help Stuart out here. All right. You're, you're going to renovate this place. I remember the last time it was renovated. I was here. OK, when we tore this place up, we put in new carpet, the same carpet that's here now. We repainted everything, made everything look fresh and new and good. And I must admit, you've done a great job. It looks still pretty good. But 21 years of wear and tear, it's time to do some new things. It's a new day, but it's going to take money to do that. How are you at supporting that? How are you at, at giving your money? Are you tithing to the Lord? Are you giving what you should be giving? Because if you're not, you're robbing God. It's plain and simple. It's what the Bible says, not my words. It's his words. And you're robbing God, so maybe we are thieves. And it says we're greedy. Now, this one, y'all, we're all guilty of this one as far as, uh, you know, greedy goes. Because the reality is, survey says that 80% of America are at least 20 pounds overweight. In, in Louisiana, it's higher. Uh, but, 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 you know, I mean, we're just, that's just the nature of, of us. We love food, and we live in the land of abundance. It's amazing how we can go to the store, and there is an endless amount of food that you can purchase. You know, it's overwhelming. We, uh, our church is right next to the University of Texas in Arlington, and there is a huge contingency of foreign students that come to that university. And, uh, every year our college ministry gets together and they, they gather up these students and they take them, uh, to get their supplies and stuff once they get here and they bring them to Walmart. Well, you know, for a kid who's never seen a Walmart before and you go to a super Walmart in Texas, which takes up like a half a block. You know, and they walk in and they are overwhelmed. I mean, literally speechless. Some of them in tears. They've never seen that kind of abundance before because the countries they come from have nothing like that. Nothing like that. And so, yeah, we're just a little bit greedy. I mean, I've seen you at dinner on the ground. Yeah. I always love to watch Baptists at dinner on the ground because, you know, on the dessert tables, how they line up all those pieces of pie. You know, all the different pies. And, and watch people as they go through the line. They'll never take the pie that's at the front of the, of the line of pies. They'll reach over and grab the big pie. And a lot of times the people that reach over and grab the big pie, you look at them and you go, you don't need that big pie. You know, you need to get the little piece of pie or maybe just pass on the pie. You know, but nonetheless, we'll reach over and get the big pie. Why? Because we're greedy. It's just our sinful flesh. It's our nature to be that way. And so we're guilty of being greedy. And then it says drunkards. Now, I know we're Baptists, so we can skip that one, right? 
I mean, as Baptists, we just don't drink. That's just what we do. Unless, unless you do at home quietly as a deacon. But, but, um, but other than that, I mean, you just don't, you just don't, you try not to do that. Okay. I understand. I understand. I'm praying for you. Um, yeah. And I can say that because I don't drink. I really don't. Never have. But, uh, but yeah, but drunkards, sometimes there, there, there's some of us who've been drunkards and revilers and swindlers. So you look at all that and what does it say is going to happen to all of these people? It says we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice I skipped over a couple there. The two I skipped over was those who practice homosexuality or if you have an NIV, it also says effeminate men. Okay. Uh, The reason I skipped it is because that's the one we want to focus on all the time because we think that's not ours. And in many cases it's not. But let me tell you about those two words that are used here, because some of my pro-gay friends would say that what Paul is really talking about here is not homosexuality in the way that we know it today. And I would say to you, that's really not accurate at all. The two words that are actually used are the words malakoi and arstenokoite in, in Greek. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, I don't claim to be, but I've been to seminary and graduated and all that good stuff, and, and I've studied it enough now to know that I can pretty confidently tell you that Paul, between the word pornea and then these two malakoi and arsenokoite, can tell you that he's pretty much covering the full gamut of homosexual expression known to the first world, or known to the first century world. And here's the question I would ask, and I have asked my pro-gay friends, how is it that people had sex, regular heterosexual sex, in the first century? And they tell me. And I was like, well, how is it that they had homosexual sex in the first century? And they tell me. And then my question to that is, how is that different from the way that we do it today? For you see, there's really kind of one way to kind of engage in these sexual activities. And and they did it the same way in the first century as they do it in the 21st century. There really isn't any difference. There may be more toys or things like that. But ultimately, the, the, the expression of that sexuality is the same as it was back then. And with the use of these two words, uh, it, it, it really covers every gamut that you can imagine. One of these words, arsenokoite, was the more uh, initiating partner. The malakoi is the more uh, responsive, receptive partner. And, and that word, malakoi, is about as close as we get to what we now consider to be transgender individuals. Because malakoi is a word that actually means softer man, and it was often the man who would uh, adorn himself in women's kind of clothes, would wear makeup, would allow his hair to grow long, all with the idea of attracting the amorous attention of other men. And so that's about as close. Obviously, in the first century, uh, 20, uh, the first century rather, we did not have transgender people per se because technology wasn't such that that was even uh, possible. And I would argue even still today that though you can cause someone to look like someone of a different gender, we still cannot cause a man to be a woman or a woman to be a man. It is physiologically, scientifically, medically, genetically impossible. So to buy in to that delusion for someone is not doing a loving thing. I would believe it is doing a hurtful thing. But look what it says in verse 11. Now, these were the people in the church. This is who he's addressing. He said all of these things right here. Look what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. Oh, my goodness. You mean to tell me that First Baptist Church in Corinth had people in it that were greedy and drunkards and revilers and swindlers and idolaters and homosexuals? Well, according to Paul, they did. And he was real proud to have them. 
He was real excited that they were there. He said, you know what? I'm so excited that all of you that used to be these kinds of sinners are a part of my church. Why? Because in each and every one of your lives, the fact that you're living differently demonstrates the power of the gospel to everybody else who will see you. Because he said, that is what some of you were. But look what happened to him. He said, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were those things, but you're not that way anymore. Why? Because the power of God has transformed you. You've been washed. In other words, all this nasty sin that you've been indulging in has been washed away from you. You've been made clean. You've been sanctified. What does that mean? Well, you've been called to be holy. You're you're being made and remade and reformed and conformed to the image of Christ. That God is doing something in your life. It's not just an instantaneous thing like washing is, but it's also a progressive thing. That you're getting better all the time, becoming more and more like Jesus as you pursue him. That was happening to them. And he says, you were justified. That means you were declared to be right even when you weren't right because God loves you and he has given his life for you and he's declared you to be holy even when you really aren't holy that is what Jesus does for us that's what the gospel does and he says that has happened because of the power of the spirit of God working in your life that's what some of you were the gospel transforms that's how we see Jesus dealing with all the folks that he meets in scripture when he meets the woman at the well who was who is there drawing water and he asks her for a drink of water and he begins to tell her all about her life and all the things she's done. And she looks at him and she goes, my goodness, you must be a prophet. Uh, you know, why do you ask me to draw water for you? And he says, oh, if you will drink the water that I have, you will never thirst again. And she's like, really? Wow. And then she leaves from there and he tells her about how she's living with the man and the man she's living with is not her husband and the ones that she'd been married to before. She, he knows all about them. And she goes away telling people about this man who told her everything in her life and she was amazed by it and couldn't believe it. When Jesus meets the woman that was caught in adultery in John 8, he looks at her and all the, all the folks gather around, excuse me, they gather around him and they're ready to kill her and stone her. They stay, the scholars say that she was probably brought to Jesus naked, caught in the act. There was no doubt she was guilty. But yet Jesus looks at her with compassion and he says to her, woman, where are your accusers? They're all gone. He looks at her and he doesn't allow her to stay in her sin, nor does he seek not to judge The sin that she is in. But in a loving response to her, he says, you have now met me, the gospel. You have met me, the savior. You have met me who changes lives. Go and sin no more. He doesn't say go and keep being what you've always been. He says, no, you've met the one source of power that can transform your life. Go and don't ever be like this again. And she gets up and she leaves. And we believe that she lives out her life following Jesus. We don't know for sure that she did, but that's the indication of the scripture there. Or the sinful woman who washes the feet of Jesus at Simon's house. And, and, and she, she just drenches his feet with, and dries them with her hair and looks at Jesus and loves him. And he says, oh, this woman, your sin is forgiven because great is your faith. You see, the the journey of transformation always begins with an honest confrontation with the truth, which is not something but someone, and his name is Jesus. We don't get transformed unless we're confronted with the holiness of who Jesus is, with the beauty of who Jesus is, when we begin to celebrate and savor the beauty and the power that Jesus is. 
The whole reason I'm convinced that you and I struggle with sin in this fleshly body on this earth is not for this sin to defeat us or to conquer us, but to help us see how much we utterly need to depend on our Savior. Let's face it, if if you and I didn't have our sinful nature to constantly uh, let us know that, that we can't control everything in our life, we would have very little need for Jesus. But because we're so inclined toward evil, we're constantly on our knees and before him asking for help. I'm convinced that for you and I, the greatest mark of a Christian life is to live in a way that can only be explained in terms of God. Well, that's what I see happen every day at Living Hope and what we do. I see folks' lives that that when you look at them and when you look at where they've been, it makes no sense whatsoever except Jesus, but God. And I look at them and every day I'm inspired by them because of all the things I've ever done in ministry. I've never seen the power of the gospel more evident than in the lives of the folks that I work with right now. Because they come in believing one thing, getting exposed to the gospel, understanding what that gospel is, and then being transformed radically by that same gospel. Girls who come in sometimes and think they need to be boys. Boys who come in and think they need to be girls. Girls who come in who think they're lesbians and that's just what they need to be, only to discover that Jesus says, you're my daughter, you're my beloved child, and and, and I want to celebrate you, and I want you to embrace the femininity that God has created in you. And they see that, they believe that, and they are transformed in that process. It reminds me of a a young boy who, uh, who I know that was born in teenage parents, he, he had these teenage parents and they, they, they tried to do the best they could with raising him and they loved him as best they could. But, but dad, uh, you know, needed to make a living for the family. So he shipped off and, and went away from the family. Sometimes weeks at a time he would work offshore and he would come back and he'd be there at the house and then he'd leave again. And so the little boy didn't have a lot of connection with his dad. He had a great mom, a stay-at-home mom. She loved him and, and uh, you know, spent a lot of time with him, really invested in him. His mom had two sisters, but they were either unmarried or uh, divorced. He had two grandmothers, but they had both been divorced multiple times. And so there was no granddads, no uncles, just a lot of women. He was this incredibly little sensitive kid, and, and he, he got along well with all the ladies. They all loved him. went on grammar school and junior high school, middle school, and did really well. Everybody liked him, and he excelled in all of his academics and classes, and everybody thought he was a good kid. He did well. Went on to high school and, and yet again did well and started to see the giftings that he had and used those gifts and, and uh, made honor roll and became a... Uh, National Honor Society person, even at the end of his graduation, was uh, received Teenager of the Year and was applauded by all the faculty to the point that they said to him at a graduation, hey, would you be interested in giving the commencement address? We would like for you to do that. And he thought, sure, I'd be glad to do that. And so he agreed to give the commencement address, stood in front of all of his peers and the school and the community gathered, gave a rousing commencement address, and everyone applauded, and all the moms wanted their daughters to marry him and thought, wow, this guy's really got his stuff together. And on the outside, it all looked great. Everybody thought that he did. But on the inside, the little boy was keeping a secret that he didn't tell anybody about. And he didn't grow up in a Christian home. He knew about God, but he didn't really have a relationship with God. But he had a secret that was much deeper, much darker than his lack of Christianity. For you see, when he was about five or six years old, one of his grandmothers married for the third time. And when she did, this step-granddad came into his life, a, 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 a person he had never been connected to before, but who loved him deeply and was very interested in him and spent lots of time with him. And he just connected with that step-granddad so well. And he thought, wow, this is awesome. This is great to have this guy in my life. 
But what the family didn't know is that that step-granddad was also a pedophile. And he began to molest that little boy from the time he was five or six. And that happened on a really regular basis. In fact, mom and dad were extremely cautious and careful. They didn't want the little boy to to be molested or abused. And so they never let him uh, stay with sitters, but they would deliver him every week to grandma and grandpa's house where grandpa would have his way with this little boy. It was such a part of his life that, that it really became normative for him. It's just what he did with granddad. And even as he got older, as he was 11, 12, 13 years old, and it was still happening, he would even initiate things with his grandfather because he just thought that was what you do with granddad he didn't know he didn't have anybody else to compare it to well now as a senior graduating he realized he had some strange affections for some of his other friends in school nothing ever happened but he he had these strange affections and he knew in his heart that if he wanted to be gay he could embrace that because there were people in his family that actually were gay and they were celebrated but he just knew in his heart that something wasn't right and so that conflict continued to build and build to the point that after he had graduated before he had gone on to to college, he decided, you know what, if this is really the best it is and this won't go away, uh, this isn't going to work. And he tried as best he could to pray that away. He tried really hard uh, as best he knew how to ask God to remove it, but it, the feelings weren't going anywhere. So he decided if God won't remove the feelings, maybe he'll remove me. And so he decided one day to sneak into his mother's room, grab all the medicine that he could and take it, hoping that he would never wake up. Well, his mom found him and he did wake up. But about two weeks later, in that same depressed state, with that same situation uh, in his family that was bad, and those same feelings uh, welling up in his heart, he decided, this time I'll make it even bigger. I'll go in and get the pistol that my dad and I have used before, and I'll grab that pistol, and I'll put it in my mouth, and I'll blow my brains out, and it'll be good. And so he went into his room, he got down on the side of his bed, put that pistol in his mouth, and was about to pull the trigger. And when he was about to pull the trigger, he remembered that he had been to church just a couple of times with a friend of his who was a piano player that was going to do a recital at the church. The friend said to him, hey, we'd love you to come sing. You're a good singer. I want you to come sing for me. But in order to sing, you need to come to church and then we practice after. You know how you evangelicals are. And so sure enough, he went to church with the guy. And he heard the preacher talk about Jesus and the gospel. And he thought it when he heard it, it was the craziest thing he'd ever heard. He thought, how could these people believe in that old book? It's such a crutch. Why would they, why would they believe that? But in that moment, with that gun in his mouth, he thought, maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's possible that what they were saying was true. So in a moment of desperation, he pulled the gun out of his mouth. And he said out loud into that dark room, God, I don't know if you're real. I don't know if you're true. I don't know if you can do what they say you can do. But if you can, you need to come and do it right now in me. Because if you don't, I'm going to pull this trigger and I'm going to blow my brains out and paint that wall red. And in that moment, Jesus showed up to that little boy, came into his heart, began to transform his life. When he stood up that night, that little boy still had a dad that was disconnected. He still had a grandpa that would seek to do things with him even into the future. He still had a lot of dysfunction in his family, but he stood up that night with two promises. He didn't know they were scripture, but they were. I will never leave you and forsake you, God said, and I will be a father to the fatherless. I know, y'all, that's a true story because that's my story. And I never would have dreamed in a million years that God would take the most broken thing in my life and use it to be the greatest comfort to other people and to declare the truth that people can change. Everybody can change because the gospel is powerful. Because the gospel can transform your heart. I never dreamed that I could be a youth pastor and love kids well. I never dreamed that God would bring a woman into my life and let me be married. I never dreamed that those things were possible. But they are because the gospel is transformational. So I beg you this morning, as you meet people who struggle with this issue, 
to help them know that the God that we serve is a God who transforms. A God who, who y'all, the, the problems we have is not that the problems are too big in our world. The problem is that our conception of God is too small. And so let's raise the, the bar. Let's stand up for Christ. Let's believe that we, with Paul, can say, that is what some of us were. But we're not that way anymore. Because Jesus transforms our lives. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the power of the gospel to transform. I thank you for this great church that has stood in this place, Lord, for hundred years more and proclaimed the truth of the gospel. I thank you for a pastor who loves Jesus and who loves the word. I thank you for people who believe in it. And I ask in the name of Jesus that there's some here today that are stuck in some kind of sin. Maybe it's not homosexuality. Maybe it's some other life-dominating sin. But they're stuck in that place. And today they've heard a word that says you don't have to stay there. Because you can know the truth. And his name is Jesus. And he has come to set you free. Will you free them this morning, Father? Draw them to yourself. Empower them with your Holy Spirit. Deliver them from their bondage. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You've heard the gospel this morning. You've heard the power of our Lord this morning. And so it may be that you personally need to see transformation in your life. Maybe you need to come to faith in Jesus Christ so that you can say, that's what I was. But now I'm a born-again believer Starting over is where that idea of being born again comes from. Jesus says you have to be born again. It's because we get to restart when Jesus comes into our life. No matter what's been in our past, it may be the things we've been talking about today. It may not have been, but all of us need the transforming power of Jesus Christ in our life. It happens to some of us as little kids. It happens to some of us as teenagers, others of us as adults. But we come to the point in our life where we have to realize that we're a sinner. No matter what the sin was, we're a sinner. That we need Jesus Christ to cover and forgive that sin because there's nothing that we could do on our own. And then we say, Lord, because you died on the cross for my sins, I believe that you are who you say you are. And I believe that what you did can do for me what you say it can do, which is completely forgive me of my sins And because you do that for me, I give my life to you. I want you to be my Lord, my master, my boss. I want you to drive my life from here on out. I don't live for me. I live for you. And it's all about glorifying you. So it may be today that you've never come to the point in your life where you needed to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We want to give you that opportunity today. By simply saying, Lord, come into my life. There's no... Magic words, it's just faith in your part and what he did on his part. And saying, I need you. I confess my sins to you. I want you to come in and be my Lord and Savior. But you have to ask him. He stands ready, but you have to ask him. In just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer again as we prepare for the invitation. And if the Lord's spoken to you today to make that decision to trust Christ, I want you to just pray in that moment, Lord, come into my life. And then after we pray, we're going to have what we call the time of response, the time of invitation where you can come and you can say, Pastor, I prayed to ask Jesus into my heart and I want to follow him from this day forward. And we're going to celebrate with you about that decision. 
It may be that there are other things going on in your life today that you need to bring to the Lord today. And we'll be down front to to pray with you. Or you can come here to the altar and kneel and pray and, and seek the face of the Lord. Maybe somebody is on your heart that you want to lift up. Maybe also that you want to come and become a part of this church family. God's doing great things in our church. We're seeing him Him uh, just move us forward in so many ways. And so I'd invite you to come be a part of our church family. Let's pray as we prepare to go into our time of invitation. Lord, we come before you this morning knowing that you're here, knowing that you've spoken to us. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you. And we want you to do in this moment what only you can do. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd eliminate distractions And help us to seek your face. Lord, for those who need to trust you as their Lord and Savior today, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And that right now, they're asking you to come into their life, to forgive them of their sins, to cleanse them completely, to make them a brand new person in you. That, Lord, you'll give them the courage to step out and tell the church family that they're a new believer in you today. Lord, for other decisions that are being made, other burdens that are upon our hearts, we release those to you now. We unburden ourselves because you say, come unto me. And so we come to you, Lord, and we lay it all down and we seek your face. Lord, thank you so much for speaking to us this morning through Ricky. And we pray, God, your blessings on his continued ministry. We continue to seek healing from Melinda. And we pray, God, that you will just bless their their relationship and their marriage in a mighty way as they continue to serve you. And Lord, in this moment, we ask for you to speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.